0: If you are wounded, blighty. If killed, the resurrection. Lieutenant Donald Hankey, 1st Royal Warwicks, killed in action October 12th, the Psalm, 1916. Hey, folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 28, Psalm, October Slog. Thanks for those reviews on iTunes. Keep them coming. We're at 78, 81, no, 84 right now, and getting ever closer to that wicked awesome 100 number. If you enjoy the podcast and haven't yet reviewed it, please consider doing so. It really is a huge help to the BFWWP as reviews really help us get noticed on iTunes. If you'd like to make a financial contribution to the BFWWP, you may do so in one of two ways. Um, One-time donations can be made through PayPal. Just go to firstworldwarpodcast.com and click on the PayPal button there. And if you'd like to make a recurring donation, you can sign up to become a patron on Patreon. For that, please head over to patreon.com slash Battles of the First World War Podcast and sign up there. I'd like to thank Caleb and Myron for their recent contributions. Thanks, gentlemen. Gotta give a huge shout-out to my man Cullen and the launching of his Cauldron podcast, A History of the World, Battle by Battle. Cullen's podcast will cover various battles throughout history from modern day to ancient times. He has just released his first episode talking about the Battle of Caronia in 338 BCE, And it is good. You can find him on SoundCloud and on his website, cauldronpodcast.com. This is going to be a good one, folks. All right. We're back. And this episode will have a lot going on. We're going to cover the entire Somme battlefront. From the French 10th Army in the south to the British Reserve Army in the north. To keep things as simple as possible, the events in this episode will be covered by army sectors. So we'll start with the French 10th Army and work our way up the front from there. But first, an overview of where we are. French General Ferdinand Foch, commander of the Group d'Armée du Nord that oversaw responsibility for the entire Somme offensive Wanted constant pressure on the Germans to push them to the breaking point. Above him, the commander of French forces, General Joseph Joffre, wanted the same. Joffre thought his French troops were losing their motivation and that the British were just looking to seize the next trench line without sight of the bigger picture. By the end of September, the Somme offensive was losing steam. September had seen good progress made on the flanks of the battle area, with Michelet's French 10th army having retaken the villages of Berny, Vermandovilliers and Denicourt between the 15th and the 18th. With the villages came thousands of German prisoners. On the northern flank, General Goff's reserve army had wrenched Fortress Tiepval from the enemy in a brutal but well-executed fight, thus finally taking the needed Tipval Ridge that gave overwatch capabilities to the British. But by the end of the month, despite the victory at Tipval and those victories to the south, the Battle of the Somme was noticeably losing steam. Both sides were suffering. The German army was losing the initiative despite desperate reorganizations that had taken place starting at the end of August. Losses during September had been catastrophic. Some 130,000 men had been killed, wounded, or listed as missing. Forces in the field were fraying and cracking, as evidenced by the thousands of prisoners taken in the French 10th Army's push down south. Officers were surrendering as readily as the enlisted ranks. And the French noted that, quote, The German of 25 September 1916 is no longer the German of 25 September 1915. The Battle of the Somme was having its intended effect. The Germans were being ground down under the relentless pressure of Entente attacks and the ceaseless and crushing rain of shells. German units were being consumed in the fire. The equivalent of an infantry division was being shoveled into the Somme every day. The experience of Bavarian Reserve Infantry Regiment 16, where a certain Austrian corporal, whose original family name was Schickelgruber, served as a runner, is indicative. In 10 days, this regiment hemorrhaged nearly 1,200 men. Corporal Hitler, as he was known then, made it three days on the Somme before he himself was wounded. When the regiment next mustered, it numbered only 350 men. There is that famous quote regarding the Somme where German Captain von Henting noted that it was, quote, the muddy grave of the German army, end quote. But as Professor William Philpot notes in Bloody Victory, the sacrifice on the psalm, the rest of von Henting's, quote, is important as well. The psalm was also the grave of, quote, our confidence in German supremacy, crushed by British industry and its shells. The German Supreme Command, which entered the war with great advantage, was beaten by the technical superiority of its adversaries and obliged to throw division after division, unprotected, into the cauldron of annihilation. The Germans were losing their best men in the firestorm on the Somme. But keen observers like von Henting could see that Germany was also being beaten by the growing material superiority of the Entente powers. British Army Commander General Sir Douglas Haig would have loved to have learned of this quote at the time, no doubt, for it would have vindicated him. The Somme was having its effect on the enemy. Despite all of this, the Germans were beginning to get themselves put back together with an almost superhuman effort on the part of the common somme Their resistance would stiffen as the long, wet days of October came. The British and the French, too, were suffering. The flow of men and ammunition was beginning to dry up. Foch and all of the generals on down wanted the push to continue. As it was sensed, the Germans were cracking and French forces at Verdun still needed relief. So attacks would continue throughout October but they would be more localized in nature. With the end of September and the beginning of October, forces out of human control began to impose themselves on the battlefield. Falling temperatures, rain, and the resulting mud began to dictate the pace of operations. It was mud that especially added a new and infernal feature to the Somme mud had been here before, and it was there any time there was sustained rain, but with the steady rain that started coming down in the early days of October, the mud of the Somme took on the character of a new, active, and dangerous enemy. It was here to stay now, at least until the ground froze. The mud was a result of the rain and the shell-plowed soil, obviously enough, but it was that The topsoil was thoroughly mixed with the chalky subsoil of the Somme. The resulting product was a mud that was like quicksilver, as the Australian reporter Charles Bean wrote. This Somme mud stuck to everything as a greasy, cloying nightmare that swamped roads, made the shattered battlefield an impassable mess, and turned shell holes into traps where men and animals could drown and die a terrible and slow death. The massive shelling that took place every day now saw thousands of shells slam into the soft mud unexploded, planting the seeds of the iron harvest that Picardy farmers still contend with today. The mud ruined the massive logistics effort behind the British and French lines. The beating heart and arteries of the modern battlefield were the tenuous supply routes over which men, bombs, bullets, and food traveled over on their way to the maw of the front line. It was the worst in the BEF Fourth and French Sixth Army sectors where the landscape had been churned into a charnel house of plowed earth, bricks, and corpses. With rain, all of this turned into a sea of oily, muddy filth that left only the single road from Longueval to Flair, working. Men and guns went unfed as rations and shells had to be carried by men slogging through exhausting knee-deep mud to run supplies up to the line. Naturally, this had an effect on the morale of the men in the trenches and shell holes before the enemy, of both sides. This... Damned war will not finish quickly, a poilu wrote in a letter home. We will be here forever. The feeling was similar on the other side of the corpse fields. A Leutnant Wolf of the 1st Company Marine Infantry Regiment 1, an elite unit facing its first tour on the Somme, recalled relieving another unit in Regina Trench, a place we'll talk about more later on in the episode. Quote, I felt my way toward the darkness. There was no sign on anyone. There was an eerie stillness, broken from time to time by the crash of shells as they exploded in the road. My men, following me faithfully, were feeling uneasy. I could see it clearly. We haven't gone wrong. We're not blundering into Tommies, are we? Asked one. At that moment, I arrived at a dugout out of which a faint light could be seen. Soldiers were sitting on every step of the dugout, with their heads to one side, sleeping so soundly, perhaps for the first time in days, that they had not heard us coming. It was almost impossible to shake them awake. One of them, suddenly aware, sprang up and looked angrily at us as though he was in doubt as to whether we were friend or foe. Suddenly, shocked into life, he asked, "'Are you our relief?' In an instant, there was pandemonium as these utterly worn out, exhausted warriors grabbed for their equipment, officers and men alike. As soon as he found his, each raced to get away as though driven by the furies. The nest emptied, end quote. Leutnant Wolf then had to force the officer in command to show the unit perimeters so he would have an idea of what terrain was his responsibility. The officer replied, What is the point of you knowing the boundaries of your position when the so-called position is plowed up several times a day by shells? The man handed Wolf a map and disappeared into the darkness and the terror. The heroic ideal amongst the Germans was fading. So it's in this atmosphere of mud and misery into which we'll throw ourselves now. If you have Google Maps available, please aim it at the village of ablancourt pressoir France, and you'll be taken to the right area. We'll start with the French 10th Army in the southern end of the Somme battlefront, where the battle lines were thinner and the shell-shattered areas were smaller. These factors favored operations having a better chance of success commanded by General Joseph Alfred Michelet. The October battles here began on the 10th, when a 10-kilometer-wide attack was launched. Here, waves of horizon Bleu Poilus swept forward to recapture Ablencourt in the attack center, taking well over a thousand Germans prisoner in the process. To the south, the village of Schon remained in German hands. On the 14th of October, Michelet pushed forward a three-division attack that broke the German second line and bagged almost another thousand prisoners. By this time, though, the Germans were pushing hard to retake Ablencor and combat there was taking on a fierce quality. The French held on to their newly liberated village, around which was an ocean of body-filled mud. To clear the way for 10th Army's Poilus to advance on their northern flank, the village of Barleau had to be taken. Barleau was now in Fayol's 6th Army's sector, and the Germans had recovered from their September beating and were resisting fiercely. German resistance, the weather, and the shattered ground led to the exhaustion of the attacking Frenchmen. In the second half of October, Heavy fighting broke out in Biache, Bois Blaise, and La Maisonnette. On the 29th, the German 2nd Army pounded the ruins of La Maisonnette with an eight-hour artillery barrage and then sent in Infantry Regiment 359 to seize the ruins. They were successful, annihilating an entire French battalion in the process and ripping a hole in the French line. Taking Barleau had to be put on the back burner, as exhausted and muddy poilus were rushed in to close the bloody breach. Towards the southern limit of 10th Army Sector, north of the village of Schon, attacking Frenchmen approached a wood called Bois-Cat on army maps. The Germans in the wood gave battle and details are few but Professor Philpot described the fight for this wood as similar to that of Delville wood back during the summer. Amidst the screaming of incoming shells and men hemorrhaging their last into the French soil, Poilou and Somme shot, stabbed, and beat each other to death over the broken and burning tree stumps of Bois Gatte. With the fighting over at La Maisonette and Bois Gatte, the days of rain that stopped all operations in their track, and the now stiff German resistance, the French 10th Army's push ground to a halt in the Somme mud. Moving north, General Fayol's 6th Army launched attacks in its straitjacket sector north of the Somme, where the French were squeezed in between the British 4th Army and the river itself. For the French 6th and British 4th Armies, the front became a confused mass of half-trenches, water and mud-filled shell holes, and featureless, muddy plains that could drown a man if he wasn't vigilant. Battles here might be over trench lines on the maps, but on the ground, it meant tired men in isolated holes, without water to drink or food to eat, desperately killing each other to push the imaginary line forward a couple of hundred meters. The French had taken the village of Rancor, but were bogged down at the edges of the Bois-Saint-Pierre-Va, just beyond. There was no appetite for a long slog through the large wood if such a fight could be avoided, and the major objective in the area was Peron, some 12 kilometers away. Fayol's plan was to strike with two infantry corps towards the village of Sailly Saizel, which lay to the northwest of the bois saint pierre Va, With this village, say it with me, this is my favorite one, Sailly Saizel taken, the wood could be outflanked and the French could then aim right at Peron. In order to conduct a two-core infantry attack, the French had to spread west a bit so they took over the ruins of Morval from the British. With that done, they were ready to go over the top from there all the way down to the Somme. The attack on Sailly Saisel would be the left flank of the French push. The preparations for the attack were made in the first days of October, when rain halted almost all movement and made any remaining movement an absolutely exhausting misery. The Germans knew it was coming and they fought for every inch of ground here. The priority was so high for this area that attacks were launched without proper intelligence, as was the case on the 4th of October when German infantry regiment 160 threw itself at the French west of Said-Saizel. I led my company forward, recalled Leutnant von Pelsener berensberg At first, All was quiet. Not until we had left Menil did shells begin to strike left and right of us. The plod of the wary soldiers quickened. Shortly before Saizel, things got rather unpleasant. The way forward was dreadfully shot up. Here lay dead horses. Over there a wagon shot to smithereens. Ammunition was piled up at the side of the road where it had been hastily thrown. Once we reached the village of Saizel... Things got critical. The entire road had been torn up by giant shell craters. Shells came roaring in from all directions and, in some cases, exploded very near to us. The way forward was hellish. We had to get through five distinct belts of fire before we could reach the frontline trench, or what passed for it. However, luckily I got everyone forward to the jumping-off point for the attack, which was a row of shell holes 200 meters west of Saizel. Then everything fell apart. The company had shaken out in the shell holes and was awaiting the order to attack when out of the darkness appeared shadowy figures. It was the garrison of our frontline trench who had just pulled out of their position. What now? I was supposed to be attacking to the left, but there was nobody to my right. Because the situation appeared crazy to me, I ran back through heavy shell fire to battalion headquarters, which was co-located with three other battalion staffs in a cellar in Saizel Village. After a lot of argy-bargy, the order to attack was confirmed. So once more, I returned through the increasingly heavy fire to the front and once again, I got through in one piece. It was nearly time for the assault the artillery fire grew in intensity. The only way I could get the men of the company to advance on the enemy was to put myself at their head and lead them forward. So we advanced for five to six hundred meters. All went well. But the enemy were not where our staff had predicted and where our artillery had been trying to engage them for several days. Instead, they were dug in about four hundred meters nearer to us, with the result that we came upon the enemy quite unexpectedly, were pinned down by machine gun fire when we thought that we were still some distance from their positions, and there the attack stalled. The German attack failed, and von Pelsner-Berensberg was severely wounded. Nevertheless, the French plans went forward, and on October 7th, in conjunction with a six-division strong attack, by the neighboring British 4th Army, General Fayol launched his poilus. The French were pushing on the German 4th line, the one that led to Les Translois and was known as the Translois line. On the left was Saïe Saïzel, where the October 7 attacks opened up a six week battle for the ruins of the village. The French Plastered the village with 270 millimeter, 280 millimeter, and 370 millimeter mortars. Rounds the size of stubby tree trunks smashed into the broken stones and tore hunkered down Germans to pieces. In the center were trenches named Baniska and Tor by the French. And on the far right were two other trench systems named Bukovina and Yata Yezov. Progress was limited, as the artillery barrage had been ineffective. A strike in the area of Bouchaven failed. At the end of the day, Premier Corps d'Armée, in the Somme since August, had to finally be relieved. On the 12th, the 18th Division d'Infanterie attacked Baniska Trench and failed. The Germans learned how to counter the Allied creeping barrage, Stationing their machine gun teams in between the trenches was no longer a viable option. So now, the machine gunners were kept just at the edge of the bombardment so that as soon as it lifted, the guns opened fire and slaughtered attackers with long-distance fire. Coupling that with weapon-clogging knee-deep mud in a no-man's land that was much too wide, there was hardly any surprise amongst the utterly worn-out men in shell holes under German fire, that the assault had failed. Still, as the rainy days permitted, the attacks kept pushing against the Germans. On the 15th elite French troops, the Red Devils of the 152nd Régiment d'Infanterie and men of the 68th BCA stormed Saïd Saïzel after French artillery flattened the entire place. A brutal six day fight for the ruins began, followed by two solid weeks of German counterattacks. In their defense of the village, the French conducted themselves so magnificently that the actions of one unit, the 94th Regiment d'Infanterie, literally became a textbook example of how to defend a position. Say Saizel remained a contested village, and it could not be fully claimed by either side. More attacks were launched on Baniska Trench on the 17th, but the ditches and holes that made up the position wouldn't be fully cleared of Germans until the 1st of November. As October began to run out of days, General Emile Fayol looked at what his men had achieved in the past couple of weeks. They had fought their way two kilometers forward, the terrible mud. As the month came to an end, he began pushing to shut down operations for the year. Winter would soon be upon the land, and no one would be in any condition to continue the fight. Moving on to our next army, we have to back up the calendar again to the end of September, when General Douglas Haig put forth a plan for a three-army attack all along the Somme front. From the north, 3rd Army, Reserve Army, and General Sir Henry Rawlinson's 4th Army. The idea of a breakthrough was still in play, with 4th Army assigned the village of Marcoing as an objective. An objective that was 20 miles away. Rawlinson, more prudently, focused on a more immediate objective. The new German fourth line, known as the Translois Line on maps, as it ran along the Translois Ridge. The village of Les Translois was also situated on the ridge. This was the low and last ridgeline before the Great Prize of Bapaume. In the end, this was what Raleigh was told to attack. On October 1st, the Battle of Translois Ridge began, with the British 4th Army launching a two-corps attack between the villages of Flair and Courcelette. In the neighboring reserve army sector, the Canadian Corps launched an attack on the Regina Trench system in support. The artillery bombardment began at 7 a.m., with the British guns pounding the German lines until a quarter past three in the afternoon. North of Flair, the 15th Corps used Livens' flame projectors to cover the opposing Germans in horrific flame and oily, choking black smoke. Men of the New Zealand Division rushed forward to seize the Gerd trench line, where they consolidated and linked up with Third Corps' 47th London Division on their left. The Londoners went after the complex named Ocourt Labai a farm located on the site of an ancient monastery. On that division's right, two tanks, although an hour late to the show, plodded their way up the flare trench line and cleared the way of any Germans. As they creeped and clanked closer, they silenced some of the machine gun teams firing on the Londoners from the farm buildings. On the left, the 17th Poplar and Stepney rifles were held up by uncut wire, and determined machine gunners behind it. The attack stalled, and all along the line, only small territorial gains were made. So it developed a two-day fight for the farm. In wet and misty conditions, an attack on the farm the very next morning ended in disaster for the 23rd Londoners, even though the Germans had been in a panic because a Bavarian unit, about to be relieved pulled out of the farm too early. Another battalion was rushed up just in time and they slaughtered the Tommies who came at them. On October 3rd, a third attack by the Londoners finally cleared the complex. Rain continued for the next few days, turning the battlefield into a sea of thick mud that stuck to everything. All operations were nearly brought to a halt and resupply of the men in the front lines became scattershot. As the rain continued, making the mud ever worse, it was not unheard of for men to die of heart attacks, their bodies broken by the effort of trying to slog through the thick slime. In this desolate wasteland, now water soaked, death lurked at every corner In every imaginable form. The rain abated on the 7th, although the mud did not, and General Rawlinson launched a 6th Division strong attack along his army front. To the immediate south, the French 6th Army went over the top as well. It was hard going. During the rainy days, the Germans worked devilishly hard to overcome the desperate days of September, shuttling more men to the front and reorganizing themselves into a more logical defense. Units were being transferred from Verdun, thus reinforcing the Allied intent of the Somme offensive. Corporal William Howell, a brand new NCO in the 8th Post Office Rifles, 47th London Division, was in the first wave that went over the top. His recollections come to us courtesy of Peter Hart's Somme, Darkest Hour on the Western Front. As we drew closer to the German lines, I could see gaps in our lines. I remember seeing poor old Bill Bolton, father of six children, go down. Then we were in the thick of it. Terrific machine gun and rifle fire. No orders were being given. Could not see anybody on their feet. Knew I had to keep going. Could see Bapom burning in the distance. Suddenly, through the long grass, I saw them. They were in a half-dug trench thick as fleas half of them were kneeling they were jostling each other to get the bolts of their rifles open the trench was hardly touched in front of me was a german machine gun it had stopped firing and the infantry were picking off our chaps didn't know what to do had just been made full corporal and was very proud of my stripes I thought the others were bound to come up shortly, and when they did, I would lob a mills bomb right in the middle of that nest and we would stand a good chance of getting in. I took out the pin in anticipation, kneeling in the grass waiting for the second wave. Howell quickly became aware that everything was falling to pieces around him. There was no second wave or reinforcements. They were all casualties, and the attack had been called off. There I was, on my own, when two bullets hit me in the abdomen. They spun me round and knocked me into a deep shell hole. I thought, this is it. A bullet in the stomach. They wouldn't waste a bandage, and I had got two. I did not seem to worry about dying. The immediate problem was the mills bomb. I felt myself getting weaker and knew I should not be able to hold the spring down much longer the thought occurred to me to try and get the first aid dressing out. Having succeeded with some difficulty using one hand, I forthwith tied the lever to the bomb case, thus making it harmless. Corporal Howell later crawled out of the shell hole and had the good fortune to be spotted by a group of South African Scottish looking for wounded. The village of Lesar was captured that day. It would be the last major victory for General Rawlinson and his 4th Army. The first attacks on the Butte de Valancourt, a 70-foot-high old burial mound that dominated the area, took place and failed. Four out of Raleigh's six attacking divisions failed that day. Wounded on the 7th and died of wounds the next day was the poet and journalist Leslie Colson, who the previous August had penned these lines in his poem, The Rainbow. When night falls dark, we creep in silence to our dead. We dig a few feet deep and leave them there to sleep. But blood at night is red. Yea, even at night, and a dead man's face is white. And I dry my hands that are also trained to kill And I look at the stars, for the stars are beautiful still. The British were defeated that day due to the weather. The rain had just ended, and the shell-plowed fields were knee-deep in mud. The Tommies were also steadily attacking into lower ground, where they could more easily be observed and contained. The Germans, too, had by now gotten themselves together and were using the same tactics they were using with the French to the south, staying out of immediate artillery range and focusing on rifle fire rather than use of hand grenades for infantry fights. The rest of October now downshifted into more assaults on the Translois line, with the British battering away at the enemy line with decreasing hopes of breaking through. After the seventh, the rain returned, delaying the next attack until the 12th. The British made no gains that day, the day on which our Lieutenant Hankey died leading his men against Hazy Trench, past Les Beauf village, despite the brutal artillery prep made for the attack. Hankey was the author of the wartime work, the beloved captain, and also a student in arms. German Reserve Lieutenant Blaersch of the Bavarian Reserve Infantry Regiment 16 survived the attacks made that day in the Akkort Labai area. His story comes to us from Jack Sheldon's German Army on the Somme. Quote, it took the British five days to bring up further fresh troops. In the meantime, we had to endure another five-day bombardment. The battleworthiness of the company sank visibly. Relief was postponed day after day. During the night of the 11th to the 12th October, we were, quote unquote, relieved, moving from our old plowed up trenches to the newly dug Spatni Rigel, located some 50 meters behind the Engländer Nest, which was intended to secure the most vulnerable place. It was a fine autumn day. The presence of balloons and aircraft, together with the presence of super-heavy caliber shells fired by flanking guns, led us to believe that an assault would take place during the next few hours. The endless crashes and ceaseless trembling of the tortured earth, coupled with the choking stink of powder smoke and corpses, had such a paralyzing effect that nobody bothered to seek cover anymore. Those who were not on sentry duty slept. Those who were hit lay where they fell. Our faces were pale and dirty gray, our eyes red-rimmed. Long periods of forced wakefulness and readiness had induced general torpor. The destructive fire reached a peak of intensity, involving flat and high-trajectory fire, mortars, and long-range guns. From Les Barques came a new message. Just hold on a few more hours. You'll be relieved tonight. Relieved? There was a lightning of the atmosphere as the news was shouted from crater to crater. Two British officers knelt down a short distance away and orientated themselves with maps. A few well-aimed shots, a shout, and their tall bodies hit the ground. A low-flying enemy aircraft dived over our heads, seeking out victims. It was greeted by desperate fire and, hit by a lucky shot, crashed in front of our position, enveloped in fire and smoke. The ensuing joy was short lived. Dozens of other machines were cruising in the sky, preparing the way for the fatalistically courageous British infantry attacking towards our trenches. It was the same scene as five days previously. Once again, the exhausted apathy fell away as the dense masses rose up from the earth before us. Once again, the attack was checked at grenade range. Only in the left neighboring sector was all life extinguished. There, the enemy succeeded in launching an attack from the British nest, penetrating and establishing themselves in the sunken road which ran alongside us towards Le Barque. It was out of the question even to consider driving the enemy back. The last runners, which we had dispatched to battalion with situation reports, did not return. End quote. Through the rest of the month, the Tommies of various mauled and understrength battalions hit the Transloire Line again and again. Rawlinson was supportive of the attacks, even though none of his commanders heeded his intelligence reports on how the Germans had adapted their tactics and that his troops were increasingly in a bad position. More attacks were made on the 18th and again on the 23rd and again on the 28th and into the 29th. At that point, Lord Cavan, commander of the 14th Corps, began strenuously arguing that attacks like this could not continue. And would the good army commander ever trouble himself to see what conditions the common soldiers were living in before making a decision on attacking? Rawlinson's thinking was in line with Haig's, however. The attacks would continue. But the next attacks by the 4th Army will come in the next episode. We now come to our last field army for this episode. General Goff's reserve army. The terrain and reserve army sector was generally in better shape as it had seen much less fighting than 4th Army's land gains. With the capture of Thiepval at the end of September, the focus was on taking Schwaben and Stuff Redoubts once and for all. Schwaben was of particular importance as it had held out since that first day of July a million years ago but its capture would take German eyes off nearby Autouille and Avelouille and Albert further back. Taking Schwaben Redoubt would also put British eyes on Redon Ridge, Serre to the north, and Grandcourt and Miramont to the northeast. So began what has been officially termed the Battle of the Onk Heights, named for the river Onk nearby. Brutal fighting for the redoubts began as soon as the capture of Thiepval was consolidated. On the 28th of September at 1 p.m., the first major assault on Fest Schwaben went over the top, igniting what would become a two-week-long take-no-prisoners fight for the earthworks. By that night, the redoubts' south and west trench lines had been occupied by Tommies of General Ivor Max's 53rd Brigade, 18th Division. German counterattacks were launched right away. This position had to be held. By next morning, the northwest corner of Schwaben Redoubt was in German hands again. Next to the 18th, the 11th Division carried on its own battle for Stuff Redoubt to the slight northeast of Schwaben. Both British divisions fought in deepening mud as rain from the heavens and rain from the guns turned the heights into a sucking and sinking wasteland. The Germans were ferocious in the defense, launching counterattack after counterattack. On October 5th, the 18th Division, having lost 3,500 men in the past two weeks, had to be relieved by the 39th Division. On October 9th, men of the 16th Sherwood Foresters attacked north of Schwaben Redoubt. The earthen fort was taken and then lost. A Short distance away, the 10th Cheshires took Fester Staufen, known to us as Stuff Redoubt. The Germans facing the reserve army were cracking piece by piece. Over the next five days, the British pushed past the two redoubts and it still took all five days to clear Schwaben of German defenders. Between the capture of Tietval and the middle of October, the men of the reserve army had plowed a half mile of earth with shells, watering it with their own blood and that of their enemies. The fighting for Schwaben redoubt was so intense that 2nd Lieutenant Bob Morton recalled it vividly in the 1980s. He and his fellow Tommies of the 6th Cheshire's had taken part in cleaning it out. Quote, The nearest thing to hell. Absolute murder. Some good dugouts there. We were in one half of the Schwaben and the other half was still German. Shellfire was shocking. The land was six feet lumps of clay and chalk and dead with green faces. Unburied dead lay all over Teepval. I talked to one of the dead who was standing up in a trench, leaning up against the side. I asked him a question. The front of his pocket came away in my hand. So, two battles closed out, but on the Reserve Army's right flank, the battle for the Regina trench system went on into its second week. This was a Canadian's fight. Regina Trench was the longest continuous trench system on the western front at that time, running for 4 kilometers from south of Grancourt village to north of the recently captured Lesar. To the Germans it was called Stauffenriegel, and to the British to the east it was Stuff Trench. The Canadians branded it Regina. It was smartly located on a reverse slope, making it difficult to hit with artillery. Attacking troops would have to skyline themselves as they went over the crest and down towards the trench. Behind Regina Trench was Boom Ravine, where German troops shuttled back and forth with near impunity. The first attack was launched on the 1st of October, by five understrength battalions of the 3rd and 2nd Canadian Divisions. To the Canadians' left, Schwaben and Stuff Redoubts were under attack by Tommies, and to the right, Rawlinson's 4th Army was smashing Lesar and Ockort Labai. The attack was a disaster as the Germans were ready and waiting. The official history of the 4th Canadian mounted rifles paints a harrowing picture. Quote, Before the attack took place, scouts had reported that the wire was very thick and that it appeared untouched by the artillery. Only one small gap existed on the left. Due to the position of Regina Trench, the artillery had great difficulty finding the wire The barrage which was supposed to have been laid down 100 yards in front of the enemy's trench had gone too far and the Germans without hindrance manned their parapets and wiped out practically the entire company as it struggled to get through. However, one officer and the remainder of the company found, as anticipated, the gap in the entanglements and fought their way into Regina Trench and held it. Until the last man of them was killed. End quote. The next attack came on the 8th, when the 1st and 2nd Canadian Divisions attacked with eight battalions. Over a three kilometer front, the Canadian troops assaulted the line from Destremont Farm to Kenora Trench, which linked with Regina Trench in a crucial junction point. Rain, mud, and another poorly aimed bombardment acted against the Canadians. Once again, they came upon uncut wire. The attacking battalions were mauled by German machine guns as they crossed the muddy no man's land. One of them was the 16th Canadian Scottish in whose section of the front yet another feat of astounding courage took place. On coming in sight of the wire, I ran on ahead and was astonished to see it was not cut, Company Sergeant Major McKee said later. I tried to locate a way through but could find no opening. When the company came up, the enemy started throwing bombs and opened rifle fire. Seeing a big shell hole on the left, I ran over to Major Lynch to ask him to get in there until I could get the wire cutters to work on the wire, but as I got to him, he fell, shot in the breast. I knelt to bandage him, but saw he was breathing his last. Piper Jimmy Richardson came over to me at this moment and asked if he could help, but I told him our company commander was gone. Things looked very bad, and then it was that the piper asked if he could play his pipes. "'Well, I gave them wound, was what he said. I told him to go ahead, and as soon as he got them going, I got what men I could together. We got through the wire." and started cleaning up the trench. Piper Richardson, all of 18 years old, walked up and down the battalion's line, playing his pipes with all he had through the horrific noise. Paul Reed's travel guide, Coursillette, reports he played for a full 10 minutes. The Canadian Scots rallied to the sound and rushed the trench line, taking a portion of it. Ultimately, all of the gains made that day were lost to German counterattacks. The three divisions of the Canadian Corps were withdrawn from the battle. Richardson survived the assault, but later disappeared, never to be seen alive again. His battalion commander recommended him for the Victoria Cross, which after an administrative cock-up was finally presented to his family in 1918. Richardson's remains would be found only after the war had ended. The Canadian Corps was relieved and replaced, but the Battle for Regina Trench remained a Canadian one. The 4th Canadian Division was one of the relieving units. These men were used to the Western Front, but new to large combat operations. That was about to end, though. The third attack was launched on the 21st, and this time, the artillery did its job well. Across a 7,000-yard attack front, the reserve army advanced and seized local areas of high ground. The Montreal Grenadier Guards and North British Columbians rushed the enemy and took a part of the line for relatively light casualties. Another attack launched on the 25th wasn't as fortunate. As October came to a close, Regina Trench lay only partially captured in a sea of filthy and chalky mud. Local firefights flashed all along the front-line trace, and the roar of the guns thundered through the day and split the raw night skies open. Far to the east, on October 24th, the French 2nd Army smashed through the degraded German 5th Army in the desert north of Verdun, to take back Fort Douaumont. The long-awaited French counterstrike at Verdun had begun, and the German army immediately halted the transfer of troops to the Somme. For them, God only knew what was coming in the next few days, although you can hear the whole story in episode 13 of the Battle of Verdun podcast, available on iTunes as well. It was in those last days of October... The 27th to be exact, that an officer in the Lancashire Fusiliers named J. R. R. Tolkien was evacuated from the Regina Trench vicinity. He was suffering from Bartonella Quintana, Trench Fever. It is probably not too far off the mark to infer that the sights he witnessed on the Psalm later made it into the Hobbit or the Lord of the Rings. Maybe Osgiliath, that ruined town between Minas Tirith and Mordor was inspired by Albert. Or maybe it was inspired by Ypres up in Flanders. From Chon in the south to the high ground past Tipeval, October saw a month of small and costly gains for the British and French forces on the Somme. British and French forces had lost over 90,000 men during the month for meager territorial gains and the Germans had lost 80,000 of their own men defending the broken earth they occupied. At the month's close, they were already voices calling for the offensive to be brought to a close for the year. But Generals Joffre and Haig weren't yet ready to call it quits so their men would be subjected to yet more attacks through the ever-deepening mud and the ever-dropping temperatures. Alright, so that's October on the psalm. Next episode, we will discuss the last actions on the psalm during November. And the episode after that, we'll discuss the aftermath of the psalm. We are almost at the end of this massive battle. Questions, comments, or concerns please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com or hit me up on the Twitter at at one podcast You can also go through the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Don't forget that if you're interested in becoming a patron of the show, please head over to patreon.com slash Battles of the First World War podcast. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again very soon. Take care.